Go ahead and take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth this morning. So the third week we've been here in this book. We're going to finish up chapter 1 this morning, consider a few things. So the book of Ruth, it's the eighth book in the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with it. It's the eighth book in the Bible, and if you're flipping through, counting, you could miss it because it's only four chapters and, and pretty short. So in the book of Ruth this morning, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. Let me read these for us. 19 through 22 and Ruth chapter 1. So the two of them, this is Naomi and Ruth, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She had said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Have you ever run into someone who you know, someone who you've known or knew a long time ago, maybe like a decade ago? Something similar to what we see here with Naomi, who spent 10 years away from her people uh, and then came back. I ran into, about a year ago, I ran into a former college roommate. Uh, we hadn't talked in maybe eight or nine years. Last time we had talked, he moved to Mankato, Minnesota. We were in Fargo, North Dakota together. He moved to Mankato, Minnesota. And then he was back in Fargo, and I ran into him at Costco in Fargo. And he knew that we had moved to Louisville, Kentucky, but somehow we were meeting together at Costco in Fargo. Um, and so we saw, and we caught up for a little while in the middle of a, a, a crazy sort of period of time and on a Saturday afternoon. And... And Costco and Fargo, I don't know if you've been there on a Saturday afternoon, but it's, it's mayhem. And then we went our separate ways, but it made for quite a bit of conversation between Rebecca and I on the way home, driving back to Jamestown. We, we talked a lot about what had happened, the, the type of conversation, the type of things that had taken place, and even not only in our relationship uh, with my former college roommate, but in, in the last eight or nine years of our lives. And we began thinking about a lot of different things. And we said, man, a lot has happened in that time since we talked with that individual. A lot has, a lot has transpired in our lives. We moved across the country a couple of times. We got master's degrees, struggled to have children, and then we had children. Um, and then, yeah, we're laughing at that. Like, everyone's like, why are you not, why are you not stopping? Um, church planting, you know, a lot has happened. The reality is when we run into someone like that, it really makes us consider. It really makes us consider what has taken place, what has transpired over the last several years. What are the things that have gone on? I, I, I wouldn't have thought of those things in that detail in the period of time if I hadn't run into my former college roommate at Costco in Fargo on a Saturday. It's kind of like a blast from the past, right? And it stirred things up. It stirred things up in my own heart, and it stirred things up in the conversation between Rebecca and I. And even in that, too, we remembered what God had done for us. What, what, God, what, what had God done? What has God done for us? Which was a question that we asked ourselves as we processed through the last eight or nine years. So we're going to explore this text this morning. Obviously, Naomi and Ruth returned to Judah in Bethlehem. And we're going to explore this, this text, but we're going to ask the question, based on verse 19, the second half there. I ask this question, what stirs God's people in seasons of emptiness? What stirs God's people in seasons of emptiness? 
So look at me with the look look with me at the don't look at me. Look at look with me at the text. You can look at me too if you want. Ruth 1, 19 through 22. We see, we see what's happened here, right? Naomi and Ruth, they arrive in Bethlehem. And it has been a decade. We learned that in the first five verses. It's been a decade. Naomi went away with her husband and her two sons. And they spent time in Moab, about a decade, ten years. In that time, Naomi's husband dies. Her sons take Moabite wives, and then her sons die also. She returns then, after a decade, to her home with Ruth, the Moabite. And again, verse 19 says that the town was stirred, right? The second half, that second sentence there. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this, is this Naomi? There seems like there are a couple of things going on here. There are a couple of things going on in this text. She left with her husband and her sons, and she returns with none of them. Right? So that's, that's obviously part of it. She's come home, but no one else is with her except this Moabite. And that's what Naomi addresses, right, in this sort of like monologue or this response to the question, is this Naomi? She says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. I've come back empty. She's been dealt a bitter hand by the Lord, she says, and she went away full. But her emptiness is now apparent to everyone. Now, the rest of the book is going to give us a clue. If you've read through the rest of Ruth, you understand that, that this season of emptiness for Naomi is just a season that comes to an end. She experiences fullness in ways, in unexpected ways, throughout the rest, of, the rest of the book. But this is going to give us a clue here. It appears that the people were also stirred, like it says in verse 19, the people were also stirred because there was an element of the conversion of Ruth. This understanding that Ruth would not have followed Naomi back to Judah if, if she had not taken Naomi's God as her God. And so the people would have recognized that. They would have seen Ruth coming back into, in, into their, their midst or with Naomi. And they would have said, man, she, she has come into our midst. A Moabite has taken our God, the one true God, the living God, as her God. And so they would have been stirred. And while it was a tough decade for Naomi, it was also a tough decade for the people who remained in Judah. They experienced famine. They experienced in, uh, 10 years of not knowing where their food was coming from. And when food is scarce, vitality dwindles. <laughs> That's an obvious statement, but remember it. Where food is scarce, vitality dwindles. But the Moabite daughter-in-law of Naomi counted the cost and was now here. And Ruth, coming back to Bethlehem with Naomi, started a conversation about the, the restoration of not only uh, physical vitality through the now availability of food because of the end of the famine, but spiritual vitality because Ruth had come back and been converted and taken their God as her God. Started this conversation about the restoration of life in their community. And one more indicator that this is the beginning of the barley harvest, right? We see that in verse 22, right at the end. And they came to Bethlehem. This is almost like a transition verse here. It could have gone to the beginning of chapter 2, the end of chapter 1, doesn't matter. 
So Naomi returned, and the Ruth of Moabite and her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. One more indicator, the barley harvest is beginning. Elimelech, Naomi, Malian, and Chilion went away to Moab during the famine. They went away full. Naomi went away full, her family with her. This is what she's referring to when she says empty, but she returns with none of them. She's empty. Bethlehem in Judah is experiencing the exact inverse, right? When they left, the people in that region who stayed there were in the midst of emptiness. But they come back. When Naomi returns, they've now experienced fullness. The famine has ended, at least from a food standpoint. So Naomi returns, the barley harvest, the emptiness, Naomi returns home with marks a harvest in Bethlehem. A long-awaited period of plenty at the end of a decade of adversity. Look at verse 6. Back in the text that we looked at last week. It tells us that, the, that Naomi hears that the fields of, in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And now he's about to breathe not only physical life into them through giving them food, but spiritual life into them through the conversion of an outsider. And Naomi comes back with Ruth, returning to Bethlehem. This marks a spiritual renewal for the people of God. So let's think about a couple things in relation to this this morning. Uh, first, I want to talk about seasons of emptiness. Seasons of, of emptiness, this emptiness that Naomi experiences. For Bethlehem and the community, though, they had experienced this decade of emptiness, of famine. When they come back, famine has ended, and now Ruth begins a marker of spiritual life and vitality for them. But that leads us to have to ask the question, what about us? What about our spiritual life? Have we experienced something similar to what Naomi experiences? The people in Bethlehem? Lack of spiritual vitality or vibrancy? Uh, th this, is, this is not uncommon. It's not uncommon for those who follow Jesus to experience a lack of vibrancy or vitality in your spiritual life. Simply not. In fact, you can, you can expect it. You can an excitement over God's word may dwindle. Times of prayer seem dry and bland. The truth of the gospel may lose its grip on your heart or appear to. The things of this world may, be seem, may, may seem better than Jesus. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you're in a season of emptiness, spiritually. You've entered into a famine at the level of your soul. You've been worn down. So the question is, how should we think about times like these things? And again, it's to be expected. I don't think you have to go much farther than the, the Psalms to recognize that this is part of the people of God. The psalmists frequently explore seasons of emptiness. In large part, the Psalms were written as reminders to the people of God about God's person and his work for them. Psalm 42, the conclusion, the last verse is verse 11 in Psalm 42, and it says this. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The reality for the psalmist here is that his soul is cast down. His soul is cast down. 
He asks himself the question, why? Why are you cast down? And the psalmist gives some reasons in the previous verses why he believes or why maybe his soul is cast down. His oppressors are chasing after him. They taunt him. And God seems to have forgotten him. But then he asks the question, why? And he applies the truth. Surely God is sovereign over the psalmist's oppressors. Surely the season of emptiness that the cast down soul is not ultimate, it's not final. There's some self-talk, some self-preaching to oneself that goes on here for the psalmist. A cast down soul can and still should hope in God. I can imagine that there was, when there was a famine in Judah, the people knew the data, right? They knew the data. They knew that they could, data is such a cold word, right? They knew the data. They knew that they could trust the Lord in this. In this time, he delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. Surely a famine is small potatoes for their God. But the day-in, day-out slog of not knowing where food is coming from could, could and probably did result in cast-out souls, a reduction in spiritual vitality. Friends, God and Jesus defeated sin and death to bring us back to himself. But that truth at times will feel, no doubt, will feel dull and drab. Like the psalmist, preach to yourself. Hope in God. He is your salvation and your God. One thing also to consider in this, in seasons of emptiness, consider this. Consider this. You must ask yourself the question, are there any outside influences that I have invited, either knowingly or unknowingly, that may be dulling my spiritual senses? Are there any outside influences that have been that I've invited knowingly or unknowingly into my life that may be dulling my spiritual senses? For some of us who have professed Christ, we've only known this. We've only known this. We've professed Christ with our mouth, but we've allowed outside influences to be the primary uh, uh, compass for how we feel and how we think and how we act and how we operate. For you, could it be fear? Fear of the future, fear of the unknown, fear of man, fear of the loss of earthly things, fear of commitment. Could it be the pursuit of pleasure or comfort in earthly things? Ask yourself the question. Ask yourself the question, am I pursuing something, some earthly thing, some earthly comfort, some pleasure here on earth? That is dulling my spiritual senses. Could it be a secret sin that you continue to indulge? Lust? Could it be slander? Man, it feels good to talk behind that person's back. Could it be bitterness against a person? That list could go on and on, but these things divert our eyes from Jesus and rob us of the spiritual vitality. I think a perfect example of this is Peter. You know Peter. He's always doing dumb stuff. Matthew 14 uh, uh, records the, the story of Jesus walking on the water. Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Matthew writes this. He says, Immediately he made 
he, they made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do, I. do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out, of his, out his hand and took hold of him, saying to you, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and the boat, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is a story about belief. It's a story about trust, faith. When we consider this text, we must also consider that Jesus is the Lord of creation. He made the water. He rules the water. So he can walk on the water. Peter saw that. And when Peter saw that, he trusted Jesus was the Lord of creation. But something gets in the way. What is it that gets in the way? It's the wind. He sees the wind. Verse 30 says, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter's focus in this moment was diverted off of the Lord of creation and onto creation itself. That's what we're talking about. Is there something in your life, knowingly or unknowingly, that you've invited in that has diverted your view of the Lord of creation and taken it and placed it on creation itself? If that is the case, no doubt you'll sink. No doubt you'll sink. Friends, consider that if your soul is cast down, it is because there is something created, some created thing that is pulling your eyes away from the Lord of creation. Psalm 25, 15, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, says, My eyes are ever torn towards the Lord. He will pluck my feet from the net. Don't look down at the created thing, the, the net, and try to untangle yourself. Look heavenward to the one who is sovereign over the net. Friends, would you talk, talk about something that's difficult? What, how does that make sense? That does not make any logical sense. Don't look down at the thing. Look up at the God who made it. Think about cars. <laughs> I'm not talking about like the vehicle you drove here. I'm talking about like the modern cinematic Marvel <laughs> cars, the Pixar movie. You, you know it, right? No. Okay. Uh, Lightning McQueen gets stuck in Radiator Springs. He learns some valuable life lessons there. There's an old man car who he finds out is Doc Hudson, a previous Piston Cup winner. I think multiple Piston Cups. Maybe my timeline right here. He becomes his mentor. And one thing that he learns from Doc's, Doc Hudson is that when you're racing on a dirt track, you turn right to go left. You turn right to go left. 
That's the idea. Jesus is the Lord of creation. We turn our eyes to Jesus. Even though our problems are rooted in creation, we turn right to go left. So seasons of emptiness. Second, then consider in this text also the importance of spiritual vitality among God's people. Not just as individuals, but together, among God's people. Last week we talked about this incredible counting of the cost by Ruth. How Naomi calls Ruth to count the cost of what it means to follow her and to take her God as, as Ruth's God. And how there were no guarantees if she proceeded. There were no guarantees in the life that she was choosing if she chose to follow Naomi back to Judah. And before we go on, before we think about the importance of spiritual vitality amongst God's people, we have to talk about something. We have to talk about what's frequently called in our society easy believism. Easy believism. Maybe you've heard that, maybe you don't. What do I mean by it? Christianity over the last century or 150 years, maybe 200 years, has dramatically lowered the bar of what it means to be a Christian. We've dramatically lowered the bar. It's basically been reduced to uh, like a microwave dinner, like an instant thing. We just we pray a prayer and we're good. Well, my story personally has been praying lots of prayers, but it wasn't until much later that I became and understood the truth of the gospel. I got the bulleted list, right? You get a bulleted list. Yeah, Jesus died for me. Apart from him, we're going to hell, etc., etc., blah, blah, blah. Right? But there was no life transformation in me. Nothing was different. I lived for myself. Bringing glory to God was far from my mind. I wanted to glorify myself in my mind. If I got right with God, I could do whatever I wanted. That's easy believism. That is easy believism. I saw this video of this guy doing street evangelism this week, and it was bizarre, but like I'm, a man in a Spider-Man costume ran up to him and started just shouting. Are you guys awake this morning? <laughs> I said a man in a Spider-Man costume came up and started shouting. <coughs> he, said, he said, I believed in God all my life. And the street evangelist was like excited about that. That's stupid. That's stupid. That dude needs to read his Bible. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Believing in God doesn't make you a Christian. Believing in God puts you on the same intellectual, knowledge-based level of demons. The Bible sets a much higher bar. First is trusting God to restore right relationship with God. Him, which he made possible through his perfect life, the life of Jesus, the substitutionary death of Jesus, and his resurrection. And it's following Jesus in every area of life. Every area of life. Seeing Jesus not only as your Lord, but your Savior also. This doesn't earn salvation, but living under the Lordship of Jesus proves that he is your Savior. Jesus says it very clearly in Matthew 7, 17. He says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. The fruit of the Christian life is the proof that you're continually counting the cost of following Jesus. What is that fruit? Paul describes it in Galatians 5. We know it. 
We know it. First, he tells us what the diseased fruit is. He says, diseased fruit is sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. But then he says, this is the fruit of the Spirit of Christ. If you're in Christ, you've received the Spirit of Christ, and so he's bearing this fruit in you. Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. And then an often forgotten verse 24. He says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the things of the flesh which is passions and its desires. We crucify our flesh when we come under the Lordship of Jesus. No easy believism that I've ever heard demands crucifying the flesh. It makes allowances for indulgences. It presumes upon grace. It refuses to count the cost. Whereas this morning, please, 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 make sure this isn't you. Work this out. If you're continually making excuses for pursuing things other than Jesus, your career, sex, travel, better car, more money, bigger retirement account, if you view, if your view of Christianity allows you to pursue those more than or even equal to Jesus, you subscribe to easy believism. Litmus test right there. If you subscribe to easy believism, then you won't have any idea what I'm talking about when I say spiritual vitality. Spiritual vitality is what we see the stirring of the people here in Ruth. We see the people stirred up because Ruth comes into their presence, converted, taking Naomi's God, and their God is her God. Spiritual vitality is counting the cost of following Jesus and thereby counting it all joy when trials come. Because we know that those trials are producing something in us that can't be brought about through a self-help book or just trying harder. So Ruth counts the cost. She follows Naomi back to Bethlehem and Judah, and there is this injection of vitality. The people are stirred. Ruth's conversion, abandoning Moabite gods and taking the one true God as her God, is reason for the people to say to themselves, God is at work. God is at work. Friends, when someone decides to follow Jesus, like, really counts the cost and abandons selfish and worldly pursuits, we will, friends, I'm speaking about our contacts directly, Buffalo City Church, we will be stirred. When someone decides to follow Jesus, someone truly decides to count the cost, we will be stirred. We must look for it. We must be the agents through which it comes about. Part of our identity is as ambassadors of Christ, and that must be that we must be speaking the truth of the gospel to people who do not believe. We must be calling others to count the cost and showing them the incredible beauty of Christ. This is what Sinclair Ferguson writes about this text. He says, It takes only one conversion for a church to begin to believe again in the regenerating power of God. The impact of one individual coming to faith can transform the whole community. God's people begin to believe in conversion and to pray for God to grant it and to rejoice that he is at work among them. 
Pray for God to give you boldness to proclaim the gospel, to call others who have not yet believed to count the cost, like Naomi does for Ruth. Great irony is when we share the gospel, when we preach the gospel, when we proclaim the gospel with our lives, the great irony is that when it comes out of your mouth, it doesn't sound great. But it is incredible truth. You say, this demands your whole life. It demands all that you are. Pray for specific people that God has brought into your life who need Jesus. Consider that. Put down one name, two names. You know people. Go to work. Do that together with people in your community groups or with your spouse or with your kids. Discipleship relationships. Because God's work in salvation stirs us up into spiritual life and vitality. So this morning, in, in conclusion, I'm going to give you three thoughts in conclusion here coming out of the text. The first one is feast. We're talking about famine. We're talking about spiritual emptiness. But there is an area that we can always feast. You remember earlier I said, where food is scarce, vitality dwindles. We have to feast. Again, I'm not talking about eating physically. I'm talking about ingesting and digesting God's word with regularity and consistency, both together and as individuals. When we eat the bread of life, we will have spiritual vitality. When we eat the bread of life, we will have spiritual vitality. Seasons of emptiness will come and go. Jesus is the bread of life, and it's always available to us. It's always available here. Ingest, digest. Read, meditate, study. Learn about your God. Jesus says to his disciples in John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. We need to practice preventative Bible reading. This is not something that we're good at, but it's something that we need to think about. I inherited high blood pressure. Um, blood pressure is pretty high. I some meds for it. And don't take my pills. I'm not going to have a heart attack tomorrow. But I put myself at a significantly higher risk in 20 or 30 years. Practicing preventative Bible reading. Sunday morning represents the only time you're in God's Word throughout the week. You're setting yourself up for a spiritual heart attack. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the next day. But sometime in the future. We need others to encourage us in this, and we need to surround ourselves with people who can do that with us. And if you're in a season of spiritual emptiness, or in a season of spiritual fullness, this is available to us. And we have a great benefit to have this. There are places in the world where they don't feast on this regularly. They can't feast on it regularly. There's incredible benefit to feast on it regularly. We'll be held accountable for that. So the first thing then in conclusion this morning is feast. The second thing is reject the fluff. I don't know why that was, but I'm going to confess something to you. I like Oreos. 
a lot, or if it's been gone for several days and consumed way too many Oreos. <laughs> it's not good, it's not cool, it's really not, it's terrible. It's not sustenance, it's garbage for my body. It makes me sluggish. Eating Oreos legitimately robs me of physical vitality. It does! Gosh! It's terrible. And there are things that we can feast on that will rob us of spiritual vitality. We named some earlier. They come in, it comes in many forms. Oftentimes they're things that are good. You say career, family, money. These things aren't bad, but some of us continue to eat those things and consume them. Like they're the bread of life, but they can't offer life. They can't offer us life. And they rob us of spiritual vitality, leave us empty and spiritually sluggish. And we must also, in that too, in the same vein, reject easy believism. It stands at the center of fluffy Christianity that has permeated our churches for far too long. Friends, we've got to count the cost. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Count the cost like Ruth. Engage in knowing God with increased depth. And give all you are to him and to others like Naomi does for Ruth. The final thing that I would say this morning is expect stirring. Verse 19 again. The people were stirred because Naomi returned empty, but also because she returned with a woman who had taken their God as her God. So expect stirring. Friends, we need to expect that God is going to bring people into our midst who are going to count the cost and who are going to love God and understand what it is that Jesus Christ has done for them and then allow that to transform their lives. We need to expect that to happen. And we need to celebrate God's work. We need to celebrate God's work not only in the lives of others, but in our own lives. We need to say, whether that was yesterday or 25 years ago or 60 years ago, we need to celebrate God's work in our own life. What has God done for me now and what has he done for me in Christ? We need to expect Stirring like the people of Bethlehem when a Moabite abandoned her pseudo-gods and pagan practices and embraced the one true God despite the fact that there were no guarantees for her in this life. And when someone comes to know Jesus and truly counts the cost of following Jesus, we have to rejoice. We must do it. Not out of duty, but out of great joy. <laughs> that God in Christ Jesus is big enough to save anyone, all people. And to be stirred to journey with that person then in discipleship, feasting on God's word together, counting the cost at every turn. Seasons of emptiness will, friends, seasons of emptiness will come and go, guaranteed. A cast down soul should not, like a psalmist, it should not surprise us. But the bread of life is always available to us. And the extraordinary impact that the bread of life has on our lives and the lives of others stirs us up in seasons of emptiness. These people who experience this, these people who experience this stirring after a decade of famine, physical, the physical life was dwindling, now had spiritual life and vitality breathed into them through the seeing of God's hand on the roof. Let's pray.